Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. It's always good for me to be able to, to get out of Washington more some days than others and uh, out of my normal routines. And I do hear the most interesting things. I remember being at a bookstore years ago in Tallahassee, Florida, and there was a woman talking to about five other people. You know how they have those kind of community book discussions in bookstores sometimes? And I remember I was standing in the next aisle, so I wasn't right there, but I listened and I heard her say, welcome. I am a counselor, an astrologist, and a Methodist minister. I think that kind of choice in religion, the choice whereby we dictate our own terms was largely unheard of in previous generations. But Danny, I'm sure you remember Robert Bell's book, Habits of the Heart, like 20 or 30 years ago now. He talked about Sheilaism based on this character that was a kind of an amalgamation of people he'd interviewed. He noticed how people just pick and choose things they want to believe from different religions these days. And he called that Sheilaism. She was expecting what she was pleasing, and she determined that that was what she wanted and would just think was true. I think so many people approach religion that way these days. Versace, the clothes designer who was killed uh, some years ago now, said in the last interview he gave before he was killed, I believe in God, but I'm not the kind of religious person who goes to church, who believes in the fairy tale of Jesus, born in the stable with a donkey. That, no, I'm not stupid. I can't believe that God, with all the power that he has, had to have himself born in a stable. It wouldn't have been comfortable. Now, most of us in our own denials today wouldn't be so bold as Versace was, but I think we have to admit that when we come to what we expect of religion, we do have different expectations than what Christianity presents us with. Honestly, most of us enjoy, naturally, a religion that is clear and powerful, that is respected and influential. I think as Americans particularly, we like our religion practical. I mean, it should be a proven agent of stress reduction, you know, or at least of values clarification. We, li we like the visible, the unoffensive, the powerful, the celebrated. We like popes addressing joint sessions of Congress. That is a religion we like. It is clear, above board, and publicly respected. Like maybe Versace, we are less comfortable with the invisible, the offensive, the apparently, obviously weak, and the despised. Now, if you know your own heart well enough to know that's true, then you're in a good position to go back with me 2,000 years to a time and place where angels represented popular religion. But this new Christian gospel that had come along had come along with a surprising appearance. And it was that surprise that caused Christians for centuries to write books specifically about that, like Athanasius's On the Incarnation of the Word or Anselm's Why God Became Man. Well, friends, this morning we want to look at what the Bible says about that question, why God became man. So if you would, take your Bibles, 
Let's go to the New Testament. Let's go to the general epistles. Let's go to Hebrews. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 2. We'll concentrate on verses 10 to 18, but let me begin with, uh, with verse 5 to give the context. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning verse 5. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. But the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. So that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. So friends, the question the writer of the Hebrews anticipates and answers is this. If Jesus is so much more exalted than the angels, which is what he said in 1, 1 to 2, 5, that's, that's been his argument so far with the people. If Jesus is so much more exalted than the angels, then why doesn't Jesus look more exalted? Why has he appeared lower than the angels? And that's what we want, want to try to answer in our time together this morning. Why did God appear in such an unlikely manner in Jesus? He says in verses 5 to 9 that it was foretold that it would be this way in the Psalms. From Psalm 8, he says it's clear that there would be one who would be made lower than the angels, but who would then also be crowned and have everything subjected to him. And he says that this has been fulfilled in Jesus. We do see Jesus made lower than the angels, but he says there in verse 9, we do not see everything subjected to him yet. But he says there at the beginning of verse 9, and notice that important adversative, duh. You know, some of you may have translations here. Some of you may have your Greek New Testaments here. But that important adversative, duh, 
we do see Jesus now crowned. Verse 9, so crowned with glory and honor. So yes, he was crucified, but he has also been resurrected and ascended to heaven, and he's presented his sacrifice to his Father, and now he's at the right hand of the Father Almighty, and it is to him that the Father has promised to subject all things. So the first people that this letter was written to, beginning to doubt Jesus, to be tempted to worship more obviously glorious creatures, the critics were right when they pointed to Jesus' state being lower than the angels. I mean, even to the point of death, which the writer talks about more in just a moment. But that was only for a while. And they didn't remember that their own scriptures contained these pointers that one such person would be exalted above all. So Jesus is now crowned, and he will one day, apparently, obviously, beyond doubt, rule all. Again, the question, why did Jesus appear, or why rather did God appear in such a surprising manner as Jesus? Why would such surprising things happen that the one who would rule all would for a time appear less exalted than angels, for a time? Why is it fitting, as the author says here, appropriate, seemly. Why is it fitting for Jesus to be so abased? And I want to give three answers in turn that the writer here gives us to this question. I'll tell them to you right now so you can write them down if you're taking notes. It's fitting for Jesus to become like us, number one, if we are to be his family. Number two, if we are to be like him. And number three, if he is to make atonement for our sins. First, it's fitting for Jesus to become like us if we're to be his family. You see that really throughout this passage. It was hinted at in the verses the writer cited in Psalm 8, but Jesus' humiliation is examined and explained more fully here in the rest of chapter 2, where we find that Jesus' incarnation was part of his identification with his people, leading to his people's incorporation into his family. So incarnation, identification, incorporation. The writer here refers to these people by many names. We see there in verse 10, the reference to God's many sons brought to glory. Verse 10, in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. So one purpose of this God is pointed out there in that first phrase in verse 10, God desired to bring many sons to glory. It is his will that many of those who had been alienated from him by their sins should be restored in their relationship to him. And I love the fact he says here, not just a few, but he says many. How would this be done? Well, that's what God was doing in Jesus. The people objecting to the debased appearance of Jesus had hit on something. The critics were partly right, as they often are. Only what they took to be unusually awkward, Jesus' lowliness, was in fact becoming, or as we used to say, seemly. Uh, the, I think the ESV and NIV have here fitting. It was fitting that God should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. 
Now again, friends, this is where, if we're gonna feel this text, not just read it, not just be able to pass a test on it, but feel it, we have to identify and admit that we are more like the critics that are being addressed here than we might like to admit. We like things to look differently than they did in the ministry of Jesus. We would do things differently if we were in charge. Our tendency would likely be more like Versace's, you know, to lose the stable, palace all the day, stay in the apostolic nuncio when you're in Washington, you know, throughout life hold successful oversubscribed seminars, and then have cheering crowds on the National Mall to welcome you, with the media fawning over the fact that you lowered yourself to ride in a late model Fiat and be driven around. Danny, if I'm really humble today for lunch, I'll just call up my driver to bring a late model Fiat and just drive me off to the restaurant. Certainly no death on a cross. But that's not how God did it. He also calls them here Jesus' brothers. Psalm 22, the psalm that Jesus references here, or that that Jesus references rather when he's on the cross. And he begins to quote it saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, later on in that same psalm, the one speaking refers to calling some my brothers in the presence of the heavenly assembly before God himself. You see then what that is. The writer to the Hebrews sees in Psalm 22, a prophecy of Jesus owning believers as his own family before his heavenly father. Look, look, at the end, uh, look at the end of verse 11. This is the portion that the writer of the Hebrews quotes here. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, quoting Psalm 22, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the church, the ecclesia, the congregation, I will sing your praises. I will hymn you. Verses 13 and 14, the author then quotes from Isaiah 8, showing another way that Jesus would speak of some people as his family, and this time as Jesus' children. You see that in verses 13 and 14. So look down at verses 13 and 14. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. So the Messiah is understood as calling some who are standing with him in the presence of God, the children God has given me, my children. The Messiah here refers to the children God has given me. So the writer says in verse 14 of Jesus, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. So Jesus had flesh and blood. Jesus shared in their humanity. And so we could become his own flesh and blood, his children, his brothers and sisters, his family. With all these images of children and siblings, we see that Jesus has made us his family by taking on our flesh. Friends, this is the great truth of Christ's incarnation. The writer of the Hebrews isn't suggesting that because Jesus was exalted above the angels, he wasn't really human, or that he simply looked like a human, but he really wasn't. No, Jesus became as fully human as anybody sitting here in this room right now. But he had flesh, look there in verse 14, flesh and blood. 
In fact, so central is this to our understanding of Christianity that we follow the command of Christ to remember this regularly when we meet together and we share the Lord's table. That's a reminder to us that He came with flesh and blood. There we gather as those who share in the fruit born by Christ's decision to have His very real flesh broken and His very real blood spilt for us. He has come taking on our flesh to make us His own family. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I hope you can hear some good news in this, that the God who really exists, who made you and will judge you because He is good, and because He is good and you are not completely good, that is trouble for you. This very God has taken initiative in love. He sent His own Son to become a man, to live a life of perfect trust, and then to give His own flesh and blood so that people like you and me could repent of our sins, turn from them, and trust in Him and be saved. That's a wonderful hope that's held out. If you have any question about what I mean by that, how your life could change this morning, you are in the best room you could possibly be in in Wake Forest. Friends, just turn to whoever you're with when this service is over. I'm sure they would rather talk to you than go to their class. Just ask them about what this great hope is, and if there's something you didn't understand, just ask them to explain it to you. Because what I'm giving you this morning is the very kernel of Christianity. This is the great story, that God has loved us like this. He's made us His own family in Christ. But if we are His family, we have to be like Him. And this is the second answer that our author wants us to notice. What we find is that it was fitting for Jesus to become like us, to take on our nature, because we are to be like Him. So since He is holy, we are to be holy. In the book of Leviticus, God spoke to Moses, and He said, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Well, here in chapter 2, in verse 11, we see it says that both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. And that phrase the NIV has of the same family is literally all out of one. Anybody have the HCSB or the ESV? James, how does it? All have one source. All have one source, that's good. Who, who has the HCSB? Anybody? Well, anyway. <laughs> all of one source is good, I think, given the context. The NIV does a really good job here saying, of the same family. Uh, one, same, source, family. All the same family. That's, that's the writer's point here. Uh, the point is that Jesus is not ashamed to call brothers those who are of the same family. And how can you tell they're of the same family? Because they share holiness. That is always the fundamental quality that God's children have shared with God. So those who, as it says here in verse 11, are made holy, share with the one who makes them holy, what? Holiness. That's what they share. Now, perhaps some of these detractors of Jesus or His incarnation were feeling that this was all too much, kind of religious science fiction, you know, God becoming man. Uh, the, the writer here mentions the kind of evidence that he'll return to later in the letter. Jesus is making those who are specially His own 
to be like himself. And what that means is he is making us holy. I don't know what you're doing today if you're a Christian, but I can tell you what Jesus is doing. His spirit is at work today, right now, making you holy. You've been accounted holy by faith. You've been justified and declared right. In that sense, God has been reconciled to you and you to God. But he is in time and space right now making you holy. You know, when I thought about talking to you about this this morning, I just thought, how on earth do I talk about holiness to this generation? When I use the word holiness, all you hear is legalism. It's like holiness is bleeped out. He makes you beep, and your own brain inserts legalism. He makes you, try to hear it, holy. It's not austere and cold. It's not a negative characteristic. Holiness is rightness. Holiness is goodness. Holiness is all the ways your parents ever overlooked your faults and flaws and kept caring for you. Friends, that's holiness. Holiness is all that is good and right that has ever happened to you in this world. That's holiness. Holiness is God knowing when somebody has been abused or an injustice has been taken and God addressing that, either in time or eternity. That's holiness. It's the foundation of justice and of care, and it is what God is like. And this is what those who are truly His are being made into by Him. It's not that we're saved by our holiness. We're not, but none of us will be saved without holiness. Chapter 12, he says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. The Puritan Thomas Adams put it this way, Christ never comes into the soul unattended. He brings the Holy Spirit with him, and the Spirit, his train of gifts and graces. Christ comes with a blessing in each hand, forgiveness in one, holiness in the other. Friends, humanity, flesh and blood, with holiness is the family resemblance. It's the refurbished image of God. There's another way that the writer mentions that if we are to be his, we are to be like him, so we're to be holy, but we're also to be free, he says there. So if holiness summarized those ways that we are positively to be like him, the author also mentions one way negatively that we are to be like him, like Jesus, and that is we're to be free, free from the fear of death. And it was to that end, we read in verse 14, that Jesus shared in their humanity. Look with me again at verses 14 to 16. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. So let's just stare at those verses for a moment to make sure we see what he means. He begins in verse 14, since the children have flesh and blood. We understand what that means, right? The children are those people that God has given Jesus, according to Isaiah 8, as the writer quotes here up in verse 13. 
and these people have flesh and blood. Okay, that's straightforward enough. We understand that. That's not a problem. But here comes his main point. Because of this, he says, he, or that's Jesus from up in verse 11, he too shared in their humanity, even to the point of sharing in our death. And why did he do this? Well, we've already seen that positively Jesus works to make people holy. Negatively, though, he did this, we read here in verse 14, so that by his death he might accomplish two things that he mentions here in verses 14 and 15. The first one that he mentions is so that he might destroy him who holds the power of death. Who's that? The devil. He says right here, the devil. Christ wanted to take on flesh that he might die. And somehow, he doesn't say how here, but somehow in Christ's death, Christ would defeat the devil. The everything which would be subjected to him would include even death. I love the title of John Owen's book, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. That's the idea. This would result, though, in something else that Christ accomplished in his death, and that was, he says here in verse 15, to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So, friends, you realize as children of Adam and Eve, we have the desire and the ability to turn from God in sin. We have the ability to do what's wrong, if we call that an ability. Being a holy God, God will punish that sin. Sin is allied with death. So going away from the author of life brings death, and death is fearful to us. Oh, again, if you're a pastor, you know that. I was sitting in the room of a dying man last week, and death was fearful to him. Friends, since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden when we first sinned, fear of death has characterized us. And such fear, the writer here calls it a slavery, holding us in bondage. And I would say he's right, wouldn't you? I would say he's writing accurately about people, about humanity. And that fear is what Jesus came to liberate us from by destroying the power of death itself. Verse 16, for surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants, because we know nothing of angels dying, but Abraham's descendants do die because Adam sinned, because they sinned, and because we sin. So Jesus came to share in our humanity positively in order to make us holy like him, and negatively in order to destroy the fear of death in our lives. But there's still a problem, or at least a question. There's still something that's not quite clear here. How does Christ's death accomplish this? To understand this, consider that it's the same thing that stands in the way of Christ's goals in our lives, that prevents us from being holy, that keeps us in the fear of death, our sins. Friends, we can neither be holy nor be free from the fear of death because of our sins. So we come on to the main theme of this book of Hebrews that the writer just touches on here at the end of chapter 2, and that it is fitting, again his word, it is fitting for Jesus to be made like us. So it's not, it's not, it's not wrong, it's strange, yes, but wrong, no. It is, in fact, fitting for Jesus to be made like us. And this is for the third, the third reason he gives, if he is to make atonement for our sins. 
And that's really what he talks about in verses 17 and 18. That's why he says here in verse 17 that he had to be made like his brothers in every way. The theme of understanding the suffering of Christ is an important part of Hebrews. It's first mentioned here in chapter 2 in verse 9. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. Okay, why did he suffer death? Look at verse 9. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Christ drank in death. He experienced it to its dregs. So brothers and sisters, when we Christians face death, we realize that much of its bitterness is gone because Christ has died and Christ has risen again. That's not just something we say at Easter or sing in songs. We really believe it. We believe it like it's Thursday. We believe it. Christ has risen again. To Jesus, death's terrors were as yet undiminished. But he resolutely set all his faculties to sound to the depths, the dreadfulness of dying. And he did that for us. Christ died with a purpose. That's what you see in that little word, for, in verse 9. I love those fours. That's where we get our benefits. It's right there in those fours. He died for the love of others. But he doesn't say how that works in verse 9. For that, you need to look down to the last two verses in our chapter. Look at verse 17. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. John Calvin reflecting on that phrase in the Apostles' Creed, dead and buried, said, here again is to be seen how he in every respect took our place to pay the price of our redemption. Death held us captive under its yoke. Christ in our stead gave himself over to its power to deliver us from it. So the apostle understands it when he writes in Hebrews 2, 9, he tasted death for everyone. By dying, he ensured that we would not die, or which is the same thing, redeemed us to life by his own death. He differed from us, however, in this respect. He let himself be swallowed up by death, as it were. Not to be engulfed in its abyss, but rather to engulf it that soon must have engulfed us. He let himself be subjected to it, not to be overwhelmed by its power, but rather to lay it low when it was threatening us and exulting over our fallen state. Finally, his purpose was that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong bondage. This is the first fruit that his death brought to us. You know, friends, if you do much reading in theology, particularly written by non-evangelicals, you know that some suggest today that we've lost the real message of Jesus, that we make too much of the idea of substitution in the death of Christ. Uh, friends, this, this is in all kinds of people's writings. I'll skip the names now, talk to your theology profs, but it's in the writings of people published by evangelical publishers. They suggest that we make too much of the idea of substitution in the death of Christ, saying that Christ's death really should be seen more like an example of selfless love, of heroic, making the ultimate sacrifice like a soldier in war or a captain with his sinking ship. But friends, I don't think that is sufficient for an understanding of the death of Christ. When it says here 
that he tasted death for. The writer has in mind something gloriously more than Jesus' example. Here's what one early Christian in the second century wrote about the death of Christ. When our iniquity had come to its full height, and it was clear beyond all mistaking that retribution in the form of punishment and death must be looked for, the hour arrived in which God had determined to make known from them onwards His loving kindness and His power. How surpassing is the love and tenderness of God. In that hour, instead of hating us and rejecting us and remembering our wickednesses against us, He showed how long-suffering He is. He bore with us. And in pity, He took our sins upon Himself and gave His own Son as a ransom for us, the holy for the wicked, the sinless for sinners, the just for the unjust, the incorrupt for the corrupt, the immortal for the mortal. For was there indeed anything except his righteousness that could have availed to cover our sins? In whom could we in our lawlessness and ungodliness have been made holy but in the Son of God alone? O sweet exchange, O unsearchable working, O benefits unhoped for, that the wickedness of multitudes should thus be hidden in the one holy, and the holiness of one should sanctify the countless wicked. Amen. Friends, finally, the Son of God had to be made like His brothers so that He could make atonement for them. Jesus Himself had taught that He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And at the Last Supper, you may remember that as He offered His disciples the cup, He said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Where did this kind of teaching about substitution in Jesus' death come from? Jesus. So here in these verses, we see that Jesus, by his death on the cross, served as the priest offering and the sacrifice offered, bearing the wrath of God, not for his own sins. He he didn't have any. He did not need to do this but for the sins of those whose nature he shared who would turn from their sins and trust in him. Friends, by God's grace, I've done that. Have you? It is the wrath of God which sin must meet and which Christ must meet when he's numbered with the transgressors. He paid for the sins of his people, wiping them out with his blood. So he met God's wrath for us. Only because he suffered like that in our stead is he now able to help us as only he can. He propitiated. He assuaged. Teach your people these words. They are sweet words. He propitiated. He assuaged the right wrath of God and invites us into the mercy that he has bought for us by his sinless life and substitutionary death. This is how he is able to help those who are being tempted. So why did God appear in such an unlikely manner? The son's humiliation, his lowering of himself, being made a little lower than the angels, was foretold in Scripture, 
and was fitting for the Son to be made like us if we were to be his family, if we were to be like him, holy and free, and if he were to make atonement for our sins. Praise God he's done that. Let's pray. Lord God, this is our hope. Cause us in our hearts to both understand and to treasure this hope. Grow our understanding of you so that you will increase our love for you and for all those made in your image. Cause this message to be often on our lips for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.